Welcome to Home Dance Film Festival, the podcast that brings a little bit of the Sundance Film Festival to you. We discuss two movies that played at Sundance along with one non-Sundance film, plus a few other fun things thrown in along the way. Today we're discussing Little Miss Sunshine, Summer of Soul, and Dazed and Confused. I'm Jessica. And I'm Dylan. Dylan, do you have any favorite summer road trips? Like real life road trips or movie road trips? Real life road trips. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there was a period in my time where my family exclusively traveled south. <laughs> um, so we would go to Florida a lot mm-hmm. and Florida and Florida, <laughs> but also South Carolina occasionally mm-hmm. uh, to see family. Near the end of my high school days, I convinced my mom, like, hey, you know what? There's a great territory just up north. Maybe we could explore that a little bit. And she agreed reluctantly. Uh, So, no, not reluctantly. Since she's one of our listeners, she'd be like, no, no, I did. That's not true. And we went north twice that I remember. And both were very memorable. Once was to Cleveland. We went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was Boss. Do you know there's a genre called rock and roll? It's been around for a little bit. I had no idea. And I enjoyed going there with you after we started dating as well. Mm -hmm. But the other summer road trip that I remember was whenever we went to Chicago. And Chicago is just the most amazing place. And I love it so much. And I've been there a couple times, once with the family and once with you. First time I got to live out a dream and go to Second City and go see one of their shows and it was a lot of fun and then the second time with you we got to go see you too mm-hmm. and that was freaking boss and do a lot of other cool stuff and we got to eat good food and it's great what about you well like you i also had my fair share of daytona florida trips <laughs> they were fine but do i want to continue going there no i'm probably okay but saint augustine is pretty fun that's a cool town historical we were an orlando family we're hitting up the universal studios yeah we went to disney world in Orlando because it's like 45 minutes away from Daytona. Hmm. So we would just drive there. But one summer I kind of dictated where we went with my family. It was actually two times that I dictated it. But I wanted to go up north because my brother Michael was already staying with family in Massachusetts and then we could pick him up and then come back down. And so we hit like all the fun spots on the way up. I think that's whenever we also went to Washington DC and then we went to Philadelphia and then we went to Buffalo, New York. And then we went to Jamestown, New York, which is right near Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. which is where Lucille Ball's hometown is in Jamestown. Nice. And then we walked through her house and we went to the museum and then we went to Niagara Falls. So we went into Canada and then we went back down, picked up my brother, visited family, and then went to New York City on the way back down, which I love New York City. It is my favorite city in the U.S. So that was really cool. And other favorite road trips would probably be the one with you to Chicago to see you too, because that was my first time to see Chicago. And it didn't feel like absolute death during the summer because of the lake, which was nice. Yeah. It still felt gross, but not as gross. (laughs) Yeah. Like New York City feels nasty in the summer and Chicago feels less nasty. (laughs) Yeah. We've all seen Do the Right Thing. We know how hot it can get in New York. (laughs) It was fun times. 
summer road trips. So this week, as you know, I watched McCartney 321. I had been counting down the days until it premiered, and it's finally here, and I watched it all. A religious experience for you. Yes, it was pretty wonderful. It's three hours, because it's six episodes, half hour each. And I loved it, and I cried a few times while watching it, of course. And no one else would really do that unless they really love Paul and the Beatles, as I do. Because I've read comments where people are like, you made me cry a few times, and I'm like, I'm right there with you. (laughs) (laughs) These people get me. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just can't believe that Paul is real (laughs) and that the Beatles are real. Like, I just can't believe that that happened. And then it happened and it's so amazing. And I just love Paul's passion and enthusiasm for music. It just makes me feel happy. Mm -hmm. It like rips my heart out and then it pieces it back together. Just the way that he loves it. I love it. And I love his face whenever (laughs) he hears something that he hasn't been listening to in a long time, obviously, because he doesn't just sit around and listen to all of his stuff all the time. Yeah. But just like he'll hear a song from the Beatles or just his early work, like solo work that he did. And like the look on his face is like surprised he still has like the surprised look on his face like oh wow i did that yeah that's pretty good um excuse me let me interrupt that doesn't sound like your typical maca voice that you (laughs) give me whenever you're talking about him sorry that's that's a pretty good number you know (laughs) there we go I love the look on his face. It's so cute and it's so wonderful. And then whenever people will play something that he's done, like Rick Rubin would play something Mm -hmm. and be like, this is really great. Like this part right here, how did you even do this? And then just his face, like Paul, he would be like, oh, thank you. Like he's just like, oh, thanks. Like It came off the top of my head. He's still so amazed that it happened, I think. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think that he can't even believe that it's real. (laughs) Because he's talked about how he, like, separates himself sometimes, where he's like, I'm Paul McCartney, but then that's Paul McCartney. That's, like, the Macca. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, like, Paul. And so he sometimes, I think, just can't believe that he did all of that. It's very charming and lovely. I just love to watch it in action. (laughs) Did he tell any of his patented stories that he tells time and time again? Like, do you know the song came to me in a dream? Mm -hmm. Because they talked about yesterday, but it was less involved, which was good. It was less like, yeah, the original title was Scrambled Eggs. And whenever I was still trying to come up with lyrics and Scrambled Eggs, ooh, baby, I love your legs. (laughs) And he left all that out. He was just talking about how amazing it was. He woke up with it in his brain and how he couldn't believe it. Yeah. And how if people ask him, which I've heard him say, like, do you believe in magic? And then he's like, well, I have to because I don't know how else that came to me. Just yeah. that he woke up and he remembered it and then he happened to have a piano there and he played it. Yeah. So he just he wrote something in his dream. He composed something <laughs> and so he's like, yes, I have to believe in magic in some way. Yeah. So it sounds to me like even if you are a hardcore McCartney fan, there might be some like repeat stories. There's some new stuff to get into. Yeah. There's some nuggets that he drops which are nice which I might have heard but forgot or something. But what I have liked for them to go into more solo work, yes. But they did not. But that's okay. They only did about four of his solo songs. Mm-hmm. But the ones that they chose were good. Especially one of them was... No, actually there were two of them that were fun because it was off of McCartney too. And it's not as surprising because he uses one first. His soundcheck song on his concerts. Mm-hmm. So that's not as surprising. But I loved his reaction anyways and how into it he was. But yeah, with the title McCartney 321, mm-hmm. you would think that it would be all three of his McCartney albums. But it is not. <laughs> Mm-mm. 
It's a lot of Beatles stuff. Whenever you were describing this to me a little bit, you kind of said it was like the podcast Song Exploder. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, did they explode Temporary Secretary? (laughs) No. That's a shame. Yeah, it would have been fun, but they did one that's kind of equally as fun, and that's his soundtrack song, which is Check My Machine. Oh, okay. He still loves that song, and the way that he loves it makes me happy because he's really pleased with it. Yeah. (laughs) Because he still uses it, and he has a lot of fun with it. And then whenever he started playing it, he was still just like, wow, that's a bop. (laughs) (laughs) This song slaps. Yeah. This song slaps, you know. It won't happen, but if there was a second season, you would you would just keep on crying. You would just love it. Yep, I would watch it over and over. I'm still going to watch this one over and over, but yeah, I would keep watching it. Well, this week, I wanted to talk about a couple titles. One was this lighthearted comedy. It was a sophomore directorial feature from Alan Alda called Sweet Liberty, and it's basically a send-up of Hollywood script development, and it's about this guy who writes a novel about the Civil War, and the book gets optioned by Hollywood, and they're going to turn into a feature, and when they do, they turn it into something completely different. They turn it into a romance like romance intrigue movie that doesn't resemble anything that he wrote. So it's him dealing with that world and trying to make sure his novel isn't being completely transformed into something else. It's not the most hilarious movie, but I had fun with it. It has a really good cast. Alan Alda, he stars, and there's Michael Caine, Michael Caine, and Michelle Pfeiffer, and Bob Hoskins. And I love Bob Hoskins so much. Ever since I was young and I saw him in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I... (laughs) just always had a soft spot for him. There's this lady who played Alan Alda's girlfriend in the movie who I could swear was Kelly Bishop who played Emily Gilmore on Gilmore Girls. Mm -hmm. I was dead set on that being Kelly Bishop the whole time and I looked her up on IMDb. Completely different lady. But she looks exactly like her and it freaked my mind. (laughs) And I was like, you're telling me that is not Emily Gilmore? That is ridiculous. Even if you never watch this movie, I need to show you this lady in, like, not just a picture of her, but in the movie. And you'll be like, yeah, that's a young Emily Gilmore. (laughs) Lorelai. (laughs) Lorelai, seriously. Honestly. But it was a fun movie. I really liked Michelle Pfeiffer in it. It was one of her earlier roles, and she was quite funny. Tell me something. Is it as good as Dangerous Minds? Dangerous (laughs) (laughs) Minds. Um, no, she did not sit backwards in a chair and really rap with the kids. Damn. I have a soft spot for those yeah, types I like of that movies. Movie. <laughs> those how do I reach these kids movies. Yeah, I like that movie. Yeah, it was fun. That's definitely her standout role in her career. Ooh, forget Catwoman. Forget Hairspray. <laughs> She'll just hear you listing off her filmography and she's like, is that what you've gotten? <laughs> You're naming all the bad ones. <laughs> But if you're a fan of any of the cast members, it's a fun little forgotten 80s movie, and it's like a fun satire of Hollywood. (laughs) Another movie that I think you would like is this wild Hungarian animated movie called Mm -hmm. Son of the White Mare, and... No, I'm not talking Mare of Easttown. (laughs) I'm talking about a real horse, okay? Okay. (laughs) 
So animation from Hungary isn't super well-known in the United States, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this Hungarian dude's name, but he's super talented, and the animation style, I know you would watch it and you say, hey, this is a lot like Yellow Submarine, so I'm giving you that little bone for you, your Beatles knowledge. Yeah. And it is similar to Yellow Submarine, but it's very flowing and like shapes morph into one another. The basic tale is it's based on a European folk tale about these three brothers who are trying to reclaim their kingdom that their father lost to these dragons from hell. So they have to like go into hell and defeat these dragons and rescue these princesses. But two of the brothers are really just scrubs. So that's basically this one brother. His name is Tree Shaker. (laughs) And he has his brother's stone crumbler (laughs) and iron temperer that's like so, Greek mythology stuff. Yeah, it's tied into that kind of mythology. But it's fun. It's beautiful animation. <laughs> and there was a new Blu-ray just released by Arbeos. Arbelos. Mm. And it was just a wild, fun ride. If you like just the art form of animation and you want to see how it can push the boundaries of animation, I would recommend this to anyone. Hey, Stone Crumbler, why don't you go kick rocks? <laughs> Yeah, shake a tree. And my final movie, and the one I'll try not to go too long on, we watched a documentary called Heartworn Highways Revisited. And this movie meant a lot to me. I was excited about it, but I didn't know how much I would love it. But I'm not sure if everyone else would love it as much as I do, just because it's about the Nashville music scene around the time when I was really in the Nashville music scene. So it's about the more American Americana. They labeled them as like outlaw country in their original Heartworn Highways, but it's more like Americana, folk, country, kind of indie. It follows a group of people, a lot of whom I really love their music. The movie starts with John McCauley from Deer Tick playing one of my favorite songs, Ashamed, which just always really gets me. And it just goes from there. There's just all these people who I truly love. Like there's Bobby Bear Jr. And there's Robert Ellis, who he plays this really beautiful rendition of his tour song on it. And it just brought up a lot of emotions. It came out in 2017, but I didn't see it until it was just released on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber a couple months ago. And there's all of these landmarks from Nashville that some of which are no longer around and people who are no longer around. So there's like the Fond Object record shop and the Stone Fox like music venue. And just knowing those things are no longer around, but also people like Justin Towns Earl, who passed last year, and seeing him perform in the movie, it just is quite emotional. But mostly, we watched a documentary earlier this year at South by Southwest called We Are the Thousand, which really made me miss live music because of the pandemic. We obviously haven't been to a concert in a year and a half. But this was even more personal for me because it just made me miss the Nashville community, knowing that you could go to a show and I would see some of the people 
people in this documentary, I'm like, oh, that guy, he's taken my money at Mercy Lounge as the door guy. Or like, yeah, I would see Bobby Bear Jr. coming out of Grimey's and just run into people and seeing people and talking to people at concerts. So being able to get a little bit of that community on film and seeing everyone connect with one another, there was footage of people in like potlucks and just seeing Robert Ellis talking to Shelley Colvin about their lives and stuff. Even people who I don't necessarily love their music or I haven't really given a huge shot to their music like Shovels and Rope. I really enjoyed seeing them in the movie because their dynamic really amused me and I like them as people. There was a bonus feature on the Blu-ray where they just talked about a cruise that they went on on their honeymoon and it was like a five minute story but it was hilarious and it didn't make the proper movie but it just really endeared me to them because just seeing their marital dynamic it was great but most people they will probably watch this documentary and say oh that's a good documentary about the Americana scene basically in Nashville but it just really meant a lot to me and I wrote a probably way too long review of it on Geek Vibes Nation so if anyone wants to hear more cohesive in-depth thoughts you can view it there what did you think of it you watched it with me but we haven't really discussed it. I really enjoyed it as well. It was nice to see and the people on there amused me. Just their stories and how they talk. Their original heartworn highways. It wasn't really for me because I don't really know any of those people and I don't mind learning about those musicians in the past. I really want to finish the country music series by Ken Burns and it goes like way deep into all kinds of people. Some people I've heard of, some people I haven't, but the newer one revisited is better because I know those people (laughs) and I actually care a little bit more about them so I like hearing them talk and it did make me think about before the pandemic and just how life was and how it will never be the same yeah it makes me sad it's just weird to just flash back to that version of our lives and the Nashville community and we've seen a lot of these people live and like we've talked to some of these people and it's uh, it was nice mm-hmm. it made me think of <laughs> whenever we saw I think it was Deer Tick it was either Deer Tick with a different band opening at Mercy Lounge and it had the guy who was like really crazy and like jumping around and he's really big we're beside the speaker right against the stage and he was giving people high fives and how I like reached up and he like gave me a high five and it was really hard but luckily I was braced because he could have broken my arm that sounds about right because it just made me think about it during the movie and I was like damn I was so close to having my arm broken I am so lucky (laughs) and he would have felt so badly (laughs) but this guy is big he looks like a lumberjack he is really burly yeah and he was really amped okay yeah yeah I don't know what possessed me to do that but you're like I'll just put my little lady arm up here. Yeah, because it hurt whenever he gave me the high five, but I was braced, luckily. Just thinking about, like, arm wrestling and how people get their arms broken, that's what could have happened to mine. Oh, man. (laughs) What I mostly remembered about that Deer Tick show at Mercy Lounge is, I think that's the one where Ish was with us. Yeah. And I remember John McCauley was giving beer to everyone on the front of the stage and, like, kind of pouring it into their mouths. (laughs) And Ish was under age and he was up for it but he was just like I don't want to get him in trouble but like he ended up just getting some beer poured into his mouth. I think Ish still remembers and like talks about that to this day. He's like remember that time John McCauley poured beer into my mouth? I'm like yep. I remember buddy. Yeah. Mostly whenever I think about deer tick shows I think about the first time I saw them at Exodon. Yeah. Like that huge long bill before Mm -hmm. they even played and like Pujol played and and he smells awful. (laughs) 
and the sound was like terrible and my ears and hearing were like screwed up for a week afterwards and that's whenever I started wearing earplugs to every show. Yeah. Accident shows can get a lot more <laughs> rowdy. Mm. If you're even slightly interested in the Nashville music scene, like the real non-gross country Nashville music scene, I would highly recommend this. It's a nice distillation of the communal aspect of the town, so. Yeah, like people having shows inside their houses, it made me think of whenever we went to a house show. and Yeah, the cause of scene house shows. And... Yeah, that's like no longer. Mm-mm. It's gone. I miss it. Yeah. But as a consolation, I know we can at least still dance inside. <laughs> so shall we Sundance? Let's do it. people in this world winners and losers sarcasm is the refuge of losers how much do i owe you for those pearls of oh wisdom? that one's on the house he started it little miss sunshine premiered at sundance in 2006 it's written by michael arndt and directed by jonathan dayton and valerie ferris stars greg kinnear tony collette steve carell alan arkin paul dano and abigail breslin Cheryl Hoover, an overworked mother of two, must go pick up her brother Frank after his recent suicide attempt and bring him back to live with her already dysfunctional family. Her husband Richard can be overbearing at times and is struggling to build a career as a motivational speaker and life coach. Richard's foul-mouthed father, Edwin, also lives with them after being evicted from his retirement home for snorting heroin. Cheryl's teenage son, Dwayne, has taken a vow of silence until he is able to achieve his dream of becoming a fighter pilot, and the youngest member of the Hoover family, Olive, has just learned that she has qualified for the Little Miss Sunshine pageant, but the pageant is being held in Redondo Beach, California. Now in an effort to support Olive and make her dreams come true, the family must make the 800-mile trip from Albuquerque, New Mexico in two days in their VW van so she can make the sign-in deadline and have the chance to compete. I really love this movie. <laughs> it's really great from the cast being superb to the writing and the structure and everything. I really love it. And the score is really amazing. And it's by the band Devochka, mm -hmm. along with the guy Michael Dana, who does other movies. And they basically like composed the score around their song, How It Ends, which I love that song. It's so heartbreaking and beautiful. And then it's like tied to memories and time times of my life, so it's like a gut punch already. And then like immediately the movie starts out with a version of that song, so like it's all kinds of different versions of that song, except like there's one or two that are different and then Sufjan is included. It like starts out with that and it just squeezes my heart. It gets me, like, even before anything's even happened. Yeah. So I love it. And Abigail Breslin is so amazing. She is so cute and adorable. I cannot take it. Co-signed. 
I just want to hug her and her innocence and naivete is like so heartbreaking but Mm -hmm. also just beautiful and she is so perfect for this role. I just love how the family learns from each other and how they learn that they need each other and they need support and Greg Kinnear who plays Richard (laughs) he's just really messed up and he's projecting all of this stuff onto people because he so desperately wants to be a winner. He's making everyone else feel bad for their choices but he's just like this isn't how winners act this is this is loser behavior and then he's trying to I think just say all of his uh, motivational speaker life coach stuff so much that he believes it and it actually works on him (laughs) because he's struggling he's not succeeding the way that he wants to and I think he's embarrassed about that there's a scene in there where they're on the road trip and they stop at that diner yeah and they get food and Olive who is Abigail Breslin she is ordering and she's asking like what can I order and Tony Collette is Cheryl the mother and she says anything four dollars and under and so she picks something and it's I can't remember if she gets pancakes or waffles but it's one of those and she wants it a la modi because yeah. she doesn't know how to say it like what's a la modi and then it comes with ice cream she's like oh great I want that and Richard he was saying like whenever you eat a lot of ice cream you get fat and winners aren't usually fat and so do girls in pageants do you think that they eat a lot of ice cream and she's like no and the look on her face it's really heartbreaking it makes me want to die inside because it's setting her up for pretty much a universal experience that women have and that I have myself where it's just like you're labeling food as bad or good and you think about what it's doing to your body and how you look and oh I can't eat this much ice cream because I'm gonna be fat and and fat people are losers yeah she can't even enjoy that ice cream in the moment and Cheryl's the look on her face is she can't believe that Richard's doing this but she doesn't stop him and no one stops him that kills me yeah they all let him go and they let him tear her down and you see how much she like shrinks inside of herself those are the kinds of experience it's gonna stick with you forever and she's always gonna think about and then you can tell later she's still thinking about it because she asked that other pageant winner do you eat ice cream? Yeah. It's always going to be in her head now, no matter what. And so it's just like those small moments that really mess up kids. Mm-hmm. The rest of the family makes it a little bit better. Like her grandfather, Edwin Allen Arkin, and her brother, Dwayne Paul Dano. They make it a little bit better whenever he's like, oh, well, I guess no one's going to eat this ice cream. I guess I'll eat it all. Yeah. And Steve, her uncle Frank, they make it better in that moment. So she's like, no, wait, I do want it. But it's still, the damage is done. Yeah. And also in the beginning of the movie, you see how much she idolizes these pageant girls. Yeah. And she's practicing her winning face. And then she's practicing moving like them. And she sees how they move. And so there's already so many like micro traumas and like damaging things that are happening. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking because you just see socialization of girls. Like you see it on screen Mm -hmm. and you know what it's going to do. It just makes me want to die because it's so painful. Yeah. Whenever Richard was starting to say that stuff, like, do you know what's in ice cream? Yeah. It's it's called fat and fat goes onto your body. Right then just should have shut him down and be like, no. Yeah. Do not speak anymore. <laughs> yeah. Cheryl never shuts him down is the problem. She lets him do and say all this stuff. And then she looks like incredulous whenever he's saying it. Like, oh, I can't believe you. But she doesn't stop him. Yeah. No one does. Everyone's annoyed with him. Only Uncle Frank is like poking at him and trying to get him to stop. But no one really stops him. Yeah. Because that's so toxic. And it's it killed me. Yeah, all of his behavior is really toxic, but I think it's just because he's, like, the dominating presence and the voice of the family. They're just like, oh, yeah, here he goes again. 
Yeah. Let him talk. But yeah, it's heartbreaking. I also really love this movie. And as with a lot of movies we talk about, it had been near probably 15 years since I last watched this. I watched it when it came to Blu-ray and then I haven't seen it since. But I loved it. And it's weird how much of this stuck with me. Because as soon as the characters pop up on screen, I would remember like, okay, this is what happens to this character. There were a couple moments that I couldn't quite remember, but this was a movie that had really had stuck with me more than I had remembered. But it is so well done. And it gives me that emotional feeling that I'm chasing with all other movies. Mm -hmm. And it's so rare that it comes around. And I echo pretty much everything you said. I love the score from Dabachka. I've listened to some of their other stuff since then, like actual albums, and nothing quite gets to this level, mm-hmm. and I love it. And as you briefly touched on, whenever the Chicago burst to life in the initial starting of the journey, it just filled me with so many feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were so many things that I appreciated about this movie. The cast is amazing. I love the trajectory of Paul Dano because for most of the movie, he's not speaking because you said he's on a vow of silence. Mm -hmm. But what he is still able to accomplish throughout the movie, I really appreciate. He writes stuff to his family and he's a morose presence, but just seeing the small breakthroughs, you would see him smiling in the backseat of something. He's such a great actor and I love that he's went on to do even more stuff and he's gotten into directing and he's just such a great performer. And there's like a key scene at the end of the movie. Every time it just rips my guts out mm-hmm. and it's such like a buildup for his character over the movie. He's not given that much to do, but he just has this goal and the build-up to where his character ends up is very heart-wrenching. I love the way that Olive helps him in that situation. Yeah. It's really sweet. Yeah, it's just very simple. Yeah, it makes me want to (laughs) cry. As you said, Abigail Breslin is perfect in this role. And like I said, she just brings such an innocence to her role and the world is trying to take that away in chunks but she just handles it so I I like even the earliest scene because her uncle Frank has just come home from the hospital after attempting suicide Mm -hmm. she just wants to know like what's wrong with your wrist and stuff she's kind of learning more about the world even though like Richard is trying to shut the whole conversation down because as you said he's very controlling and doesn't think it's appropriate for like seven-year-old to hear that but there's also the school of thought you don't want to necessarily talk down to you don't want to traumatize them or anything Mm -hmm. but like you want to treat them if they're curious about it explain it in a way that might make sense to children yeah you want to give them that chance you want to show them respect and actually explain things to them yeah and then even like the small moments of just whenever he says he did it because the boy he loved she's just like a boy that's silly (laughs) (laughs) I like the way that she says that that's silly yeah <laughs> it's not like really a judgment, but she's just like, I don't, I've never heard that. That's <laughs> yeah. Like, I didn't know that was possible. That's yeah. fun. <laughs> I love how her presence in the movie, she's just this ball of unbridled enthusiasm, and everyone else is falling apart in different ways. And she's keeping the family moving towards a goal, and everyone else is just trying to work through all of their stuff. Yeah. I just wrote down the note unbridled enthusiasm versus family turmoil. She captures the elation of wanting something so bad whenever she hears that she's going to be in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant and she's just running around and screaming 
coming. Just knowing that feeling of just like being so excited about something and how she captures that, I loved it. Yeah, whenever she's super excited and everything and she's keeping them together because it's like that whole experience where you're a kid and you have like a different situation happening with you. Mm -hmm. So you don't realize all the craziness that's going on. Mm -hmm. So you don't realize that your dad is like struggling to keep a roof over your head and how the marriage is strained and how your uncle almost died. Yeah. You don't know it. Your grandpa's a drug addict. Yeah, you don't know these things. You have like that child filter and it's just through all this innocence and so you're just excited about that one thing and it's one track minded I mean she's a kid herself in the movie but just that whole like all or nothing feel where it's everything is in the moment and Mm -hmm. you're not worrying about the past you're not worrying about the future but you're just so excited for that one thing you made it you got through and you're in this pageant Yeah. so it's like I can win and this is my greatest dream realized Mm -hmm. that's like your greatest dream thus far is just to be in this pageant yeah but one of my favorite I mean favorite weird word it one that breaks my heart in this movie is whenever she reveals how she's not completely sheltered from some of the realities of the world and that's in her relationship with her grandfather which i love their dynamic because he can be a very messed up person and like say a lot of horrible stuff towards people but he's also someone filled with a lot of love especially for olive Mm -hmm. and whenever they're talking in the hotel and she ask him if she's beautiful Mm. and how she says she doesn't want to be a loser because her dad doesn't like losers and then you're just like oh my god there are a lot of scenes that rip my heart out but that's one of the ones just knowing that her dad's neuroses has seeped its way into her brain of just saying like my dad doesn't like losers I don't want to lose my dad's love so I cannot be a loser if I lose this pageant he might not love me yeah kids usually pick up on stuff like in simplicity forms like Mm -hmm. that like my dad doesn't like losers so I don't want to be a loser yeah but the way Alan Arkin plays it is great and he's great throughout the movie even whenever he's not talking with Olive he has this ridiculous conversation with Dwayne about how he should sleep with a bunch of women (laughs) while he's young because you're underage and they're underage so (laughs) it's all good once you turn 18 it's going to become a problem but the young stuff's the best stuff and Olive has headphones on (laughs) the whole time she's listening to stuff through that conversation so he's just like I can go yeah he'll just say the whack of stuff and then he'll the same with uncle frank whenever he just asks him stuff inappropriate stuff about being a homosexual yeah he's ridiculous this was a movie i'm pretty sure it earned him an oscar for that role i'm glad that alan arkin has an oscar (laughs) (laughs) he's good as I was saying before, like all of the family has different journeys and Uncle Frank, his journey is nice learning within this family and this connection that he wants to be alive and he has something to live for, which is this family, <laughs> forming that connection with them and loving them more and being excited for Olive and helping her. I think he just realizes how important it is to live and whenever he has like a talk with Dwayne and he's explaining like how he's a scholar of Proust and he's explaining how in Proust's life he said that his suffering actually helped his work. Yeah, it made him who he was. 
Yeah, so I think he realizes in those moments how the suffering, he needed it. Mm -hmm. But before, it was just, it was too much for him. And so he tried to commit suicide. But in the whole journey, he just learns how, whenever he looks back, these are probably going to be some of the best years of his life, even though it was filled with heartache. Mm -hmm. I love how all of their journeys are poignant. Yeah, They all have different things that they learn that can be really heart-wrenching. And then you build up to the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And I'm not going to go into my whole thoughts on pageant culture as much (laughs) as I did on the Drop Dead Gorgeous episode. But needless to say, pageants are still awful. (laughs) Yeah, they're toxic and just... It's so scary how these girls are presented. And some of these girls that went on stage, they did not look real. And mm-hmm. they honestly, this is hard, but like, they looked disgusting. <laughs> like, they looked alien. Yeah. Because, because they've been made up. Yeah. And some of them either had real tans or fake tans. And it, they oh, have, they were fake tans. They have big hair. And the way that they moved, they studied other older women. So mm-hmm. they're really over-sexualized. And they're like eight years old. Mm-hmm. And it's really gross. The bathing suits that they're wearing are two pieces and they're like flaunting and everyone's cheering and loving it. It's really nasty. Yeah, that none of the adults in the room can see what is wrong with this. And at least Olive has a one piece, Mm -hmm. but just these are very little girls and they're just drudging their stuff down the stage and people are like, oh, that's so funny. Look at them. They're little little women. It's like, no, this is gross. Yeah. At eight years old, they're already (laughs) presented as sex objects. It's gross. Yeah. And the look on Olive's face when whenever she sees them and then she looks at herself and she looks really disappointed in herself. That's so sad Mm -hmm. because she's like, oh, I'm not like that. And it's like, no, you don't want to be like that. No, you're way better. You're good. You're good. (laughs) So just the whole pageant aspect, it just really made me cringe. The announcer having to hype up these girls and it's just like, these girls are like seven and eight years old. Come on now. And I know, I know it happens in real life. Yeah. I've seen it and it's whack. Yeah. But well, there's like a whole TV show about it. What What is it called? Toddlers and Tiaras? Yeah. With like Honey Boo Boo and all that. I think so, yeah. But the one thing I wanted to specifically mention about this is the audience, they treat Olive so horribly and they just react like they're aghast at her uh, over certain things. And I did not understand why they were so upset considering everything else that had been on that stage. <laughs> I know. And it blew my mind like that they basically wanted to stop the show and just be like this is awful we can't have this on our stage I'm like what about all the other stuff why are you freaking out over this performance yeah the audacity that these people had to walk out on a seven or eight year old performing mm-hmm. like what because it was just like everyone else to my eyes yeah I couldn't imagine just walking out on a kid and just being like ugh you suck yeah boo you <laughs> she offended their sensibilities yeah it's so stupid and before the disaster happened or whatever olive's getting ready and she's like in the back room and already after seeing the girls walking around already she's in the back room like with all the mirrors surrounding her and she's already doing that pose that women do how they're looking at themselves in the mirror she's already doing that and wasn't she sucking in her yes, gut a little bit yeah it is something that i know very well and just like already she's doing that it's so soul crushing to see it's already getting 
in into her brain. Yeah. It's already there. It's so awful. Mm-hmm. Her dad planting that and now seeing all these girls and then them having the crowd applause and cheer for them and say how great it is. It's just more and more. Yeah. It's not good. I at least liked, as you mentioned earlier, that the Miss America or the contestant that she talked to, the older one, wasn't a toxic influence on her. Yeah, she was good. So that was just like one ray of hope in this sea of nastiness. Yeah. This movie, I would consider it very nearly perfect. It lost me just slightly at the end because it gets a little bit over the top and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but just say there's a scene involving a hospital. I know it needed to be in the movie to wrap stuff up, but the kind of shenanigans that they get into is just kind of like, really? All right. (laughs) It's funny, but it's also completely unrealistic and it not ruined the movie, but slightly brought it down for me from being like, oh, this is perfect from beginning to end. Yeah, it's frustrating, that scene. Because it just seems like a scene out of a different movie almost to me, like slapsticky. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But other than that, this movie is tops. <laughs> a plus. <laughs> oh, good for you. And how was it? But to make it official, what is that rating system? My rating system is broken car horns. Yeah. I would give this movie four and a half broken car horns out of five. I am right there with you. Four (laughs) and a half out of five for the reason I just mentioned. Yeah. This movie is fantastic. Mm -hmm. If you want to see if this movie connects with you in the same way, it is currently available digitally and on Blu-ray. Are you ready, black people? Are you really ready? Are you ready to listen to all the beautiful black voices, the beautiful black feeling, the beautiful black waves moving in beautiful air? Are you ready, black people? Are you ready? Nobody ever heard of the Harlem Culture Festival. Nobody would believe that happened. Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, debuted at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year and marks the feature directorial debut of Amir Questlove Thompson. Summer of Soul is part music film, part historical record created around an epic event that celebrated black history, culture, and fashion. Over the course of six weeks in the summer of 1969, just 100 miles south of Woodstock, the Harlem Cultural Festival was filmed in Mount Morris Park. Footage was never seen and largely forgotten until now. Summer Soul shines a light on the importance of history to our spiritual well-being and stands as a testament to the healing power of music during times of unrest, both past and present. The feature includes never-before-seen concert performances by Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Mahalia Jackson, B.B. King, The Fifth Dimension, and more. So I was really excited about this film ever since I heard about people's reactions from Sundance earlier this year. And I really love Questlove. I really enjoyed this movie. I didn't love it as much as I had hoped. I found it kind of similar to some other movies we've been watching recently, even though they're further in the past. It was like a combination of movies such as Jazz on a Summer's Day, which captured the Newport Jazz Festival back in the 60s. And we also recently watched Nation Time this week, 
which is about the National Black Political Convention that was held in 1972. Those are obviously from the time of which they were recorded in those years, and this is more of a reflection back upon it, but it has a lot of the same themes of both the importance of music and to culture and also the political plight of black people, especially in this time. I thought the movie was really well constructed. I think this movie is probably overall more entertaining and maybe better than those two because I think it had a structure that worked better for me on a personal level of how it both gave the performances but also commentary on the performances from people who had actually been at the performances from a modern context and providing what that meant to them to have that type of gathering where this primarily black audience could come together in Harlem and just really feel a part of something bigger than themselves and had to have something for them at a time where so much of society was not for them. I think Questlove did a really great job of kind of showing how this festival that had mostly been forgotten, how important it actually was to all of these people. I just did not personally find it super enthralling, but I respected it, if that makes sense. I enjoyed the movie. I didn't know much about it at all. I had just heard the title and that it had premiered at Sundance and that Questlove had done it, but I didn't know that it was about an actual festival. So I thought it was going to be like people looking back on this period of music and how it affected their lives, kind of like the pop music series thing that we're watching on Netflix. Mm-hmm. So it was just like how the music came to be and how it affected them. So maybe the people involved and then just listeners. So of... almost kind of like the like an echo in the canyon. This yeah. is what was happening in that scene during this time. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. I didn't know it was an actual festival and it's just something else like it's good that movies are around because I had no idea about this festival or anything I think I'd heard of Black Woodstock before Mm -hmm. but I didn't know really what it was now I know about it so it's just good that things like this can be made and I liked watching it and like you said the structure is really good and it is better than jazz on a summer's day for sure for me at least yeah because I mean it had people that I knew more performers that I knew but also just I like the structure of the actual performers and artists reflecting back on the time and what it meant to them and then like showing them the footage getting their reaction I like that better so I like the more modern injection into it and people who attended the festival talking about it it's easier to connect more to that this one is more accessible I think to most people definitely and it just kind of like blows my mind that they had the foresight to film it and then also with Woodstock like someone was there filming that it just I don't know it blows my mind that someone even thought to do that at that time. I know documentaries have been around forever Mm -hmm. for a long, long time, but it's just like, let's film this. (laughs) It's wild to think about. And then we have all this footage. So it's interesting that there was all of this footage to make a doc out of Mm -hmm. and that it was forgotten. And then I don't know how, I guess Questlove was maybe just kind of obsessed with it. And then he's just like working on it. And he's like, yeah, I want to do this. And then he's a music connoisseur. So of course this is right up his alley. Yeah. And so you just have this movie now and you can just see it. He was able to craft a narrative through all the hours and hours of footage I'm sure he had access to. In the footage, seeing from a different shot, like the cameras on the stage filming them, Mm -hmm. I always just 
find it so strange what people choose to film, like that they thought to film it because we're so used to it now. Everything is filmed now. It's not even a question. Yeah. If something's happening, if there's not a professional crew, someone always has their iPhone. So it's always being filmed. So we have everything, but it's just like, they weren't thinking about it that as much. And so they're just like, yeah, I'm going to film this. Yeah. And that they had the equipment. It's just one person. It's just like the Apollo moon landing. Like yeah. they filmed all inside the control room and everything and the people outside lining up. It blows my mind that we even have all that footage. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, that's exactly how I felt about Nation Time. It's just fresh in my mind because I just wrote the review last night. <laughs> but just reading about how the leader of the National Black Party Convention, whenever they were making it happen, he just called up William Greaves and was just like, hey man, uh, would you want to come down and film this? I think it might be something cool happening here. And he was like, yeah. He paid for it basically out of his own pocket to film that. But just so we have this historical document, it connects to this because, as I said, this movie has a lot of kind of overlap with some of that. People like Reverend Jesse Jackson speaking here, who is also in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, speaking from the stage. It's just so interesting to get some of that overlap. And even like Jess from A Summer's Day, we saw Mahalia Jackson perform an incredible performance there. And then she was also in here. And mm-hmm. like, she was just as great here. Like you said, the fact that this exists is amazing. There are a lot of great performances. And it's not just the people who I knew beforehand. Like, I love discovering bands through this film even if I knew the music I didn't necessarily know them I did not necessarily know like who the Edwin Hawkins singers were but I knew Oh Happy Day as a song learning more about the fifth dimension and how they struggled between being known as kind of a pop act that wouldn't get played on pop radio because they were too black but they weren't like black enough to be black music just hearing kind of their insight like that was one of the artists I got from a modern perspective talking about why they wanted to perform at the festival kind of solidified their place like black people I want you to see us and like accept us and black music shouldn't just be one thing black isn't a type of music so I really liked especially that type of perspective even from people I didn't necessarily know but even though I did love performances from the people I knew as well and like of course I'm gonna be happy happy to get performances from Nina Simone. Everyone was pretty much on fire who was there. Yeah, that made me think of Childish Gambino whenever they were talking about how people thought the fifth dimension were white and then they saw them and they were like, what? And then black people were like, you're not black enough. It just made me think of Childish Gambino because he talks about that a lot because of the way that he sounds. The black people were like, you don't sound black. And then he's just like, I don't know. That's just how I sound. Yeah. Also, another documentary we just watched this week was the Chuck Berry documentary, which mm. that's what happened to him. Like people thought he was white for a while like radio station saw he was white and then they're like oh you're black no we're not gonna play you so yeah which that happened tons in the past because they're just like well it's superior sounding so it it has to be a white guy but i'm just like you're whack yeah the movie just made me think about what they're talking about just like black music and white music and how they separate them you have the pop charts which was white Mm -hmm. mainly and then you have the soul and r&b which is black and at that time it was lucky that you crossed over mm-hmm. and that was the goal of Motown the entire goal of forming it was to cross over and appeal to both so that they could get more money and more recognition and everything and they succeeded yeah. like the whole Motown label is like a ginormous like machine and it's amazing and a lot of amazing output but like it's just strange how everything was so segregated it's just music and it's all good that's racism for you yeah because the only reason why a lot of the white artists exist today is because of black artists 
They don't want to like black people. That's what it boils down to. It's so dumb. <laughs> I liked how some of the issues that were brought up through the music, like whenever Sly and the Family Stone took the stage, people were taken aback because Sly had white people in his band and he had women in his band mm-hmm. and he was like one of the first. They described it as two-tone and then like gender parity. He was just like, I'll welcome anyone into the band. I'm not just going to have just black guys in my band. Like Anyone who wants to join in. He can get the job done. Yeah. I especially love that he was bringing women on and they were killing as, it. As musicians, not just backup singers. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, because she was playing like a trumpet. So I thought that was interesting how that, that commentary was included in the narrative as well. Mm-hmm. It amused me how one of the guys was like, yeah, there's a white guy on drums. And he was like, how do they even do that? They can't do that. Yeah, like, <laughs> they can't have rhythm, basically. Yeah. I also uh, appreciate the larger kind of cultural aspect of the festival that they got into and the time period. There was just small moments of the audience experience that they would capture, seeing like the prototypical food trucks almost, the barbecue truck that they had out there. And one especially interesting note that I did not expect the (laughs) film to get into is this festival happened right around the time as the moon landing, Mm -hmm. which I was very careful to gauge my reaction of that because on one hand the moon landing is something to be proud of and it's a major accomplishment but then whenever these black people were being interviewed and they were like yeah that's cool and all but also black people are starving in America that money probably could have been better spent elsewhere and my initial gut reaction is to be like well this is important too but also you are also right and I wish everything could be equal and fair and they're right that it's more important for people not to go hungry because getting to the moon didn't actually give us anything except the thrill of exploration and finding new breakthroughs into space. But I completely get where they're coming from of just their criticisms of how that money could have been spent. Yeah. Well, going to space is important besides exploration. Well, just developing technology and science and we need the ISS. We need satellites and everything. All our technology on Earth. The reason we have it is because of NASA. So it's not just like exploration and new frontier and how man has to keep pushing the boundaries, blah, blah, blah. Like right now, it's like people want to go to space to be the first people on Mars and whatever, but it's important for different reasons. But whenever they were talking about it at the time, I wish our country, this never would have happened, but I wish that they would have taken care of people more on Earth before so there aren't marginalized people and then we can go to space and do all this other stuff at the same time. So you're giving time and money to the people who need it and also going into space and giving time and money to science and figuring out new stuff instead of money that went to dumb things, probably pointless wars and dumbass politicians who don't need it. Problems that we have now yeah. Because we have all of this money going into places that we don't need it in. Like, we need money in our, our education systems and our communities, like, more black communities and minorities who need resources. We need that, but no one cares. Yeah. They're still not giving money to it, so I just wish that it could be both. Of course, me being a person who's, like, a space nerd and a science nerd, the moon landing, it's really amazing and important to me. So it hurts my heart that it's so, it's like a jaded experience 
experience for everyone else because they were being stepped on. Yeah, and they, they, they can't enjoy it because they're not equal to everyone else. Yeah, they don't have the time to enjoy it because they're worried about surviving, whereas I had the luxury to enjoy it and learn about science and be excited for it. But it's not something that they have time to be excited for because they can't. They have to survive. So it just breaks my heart that it's like that. Yeah. I wish that it could be different, but I don't know if it ever will be. Did you have a favorite performance in the movie? I liked Sly and the Family Stone, and then I did like The Fifth Dimension a lot. So probably those. Like, those are the ones that are stuck in my head because I've had everyday people stuck in my head since we watched it. Yeah. I really enjoyed, I mean, this is a classic song, but Gladys Knight's Heard It Through the Grapevine. Yeah, I just prefer Marvin Gaye's version. Yeah, but she did a good (laughs) job. She did. I just like Marvin Gaye's version a little bit better. He wasn't around. (laughs) I like the choir on Oh Happy Day and everything. Oh, yeah. I like whenever they bring choirs into songs. It's usually a nice touch. Yeah. That's another thing about the movie that's nice is just how music affects people. Yeah. It's nice seeing. Also, like, whenever we watch jazz on a summer's day and then going to this one, it's strange how on jazz on a summer's day, the audience is, like, mostly white. They showed, like, I don't know, three black people in the crowd. And almost all of the performers were black. Yeah. There's more than half, at least. Yeah, it's because they were in... Newport, Rhode Island. Okay. But even whenever the movie kind of started out with almost exclusively white artists, I was like, this isn't jazz. What are, what are we doing here? But then it, I guess they were building up to the more <laughs> yeah. important, notable names. Headliners. Yeah. But I also felt that during Jazz and Summer's Day. I was just like, this is odd because it's just a bunch of rich white people. Yeah. I didn't know if the filmmaker was just filming the white people mostly because he did film several people repeatedly Uh, there's a whole thing if you want to dig into it (laughs) of the filmmaking behind jazz on the summer's day and their intentions i don't know is it bad no the filmmaker was just pretty whack i don't want to go since we're not talking about it i had issues with it (laughs) and i brought it up in my review but it's still a interesting historical document but it's very heavily skewed towards the white experience whereas (laughs) quest love being a black guy and there were probably some white people who attended this festival yeah i saw one yeah one But this was definitely a festival for black people, which is great just to see them appreciating this for themselves and not being appropriated by other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think other people would have been unwelcome. I just think that this was for them and just seeing their experiences was very worthwhile. Yeah. I'm glad Questlove, I think this is the perfect directorial debut for him or feature directorial debut at least because it seems like a very personal story to him the music is very personal to him as well Mm -hmm. so just that he was able to bring this story that i knew meant a lot to him to a wider audience like people like us who are just like i don't Mm -hmm. know what this festival is it's entertaining but it's also like very important as a historical document as well yeah now if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say now's the fucking time What is your rating system? Well, in honor of the sponsor of the festival, I'm going to go with Maxwell House Coffee Cans. (laughs) And I would give this three and a half Maxwell House Coffee Cans. I think I will also give it three and a half Maxwell Cans of Coffee out of five. If you want to see how you feel about this film, it is currently probably still left in a few select theaters, but also available on Hulu. It was the last day of school. Uh, Miss Crawford, I was thinking that maybe you and I can get together over the summer. I mean, it'll be legal. I mean, it can make- mm-hmm. 
It was the first day of summer vacation. You guys know anything about a party here tonight? No, sir. It was a time they will never forget. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I thought he was cute. You thought he was cute? Then. Do you realize when he graduated, we were like three years old? If only they could remember it. Okay. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. Dazed and Confused was released in 1993. It was written and directed by Richard Linklater. It stars Jason London, Michelle Burke, Marissa Rabizi, Wiley Wiggins, Rory Cochran, Matthew McConaughey, and Sasha Jensen. This coming-of-age film follows the mayhem of a group of rowdy teenagers in Austin, Texas, celebrating the last day of high school in 1976. The graduating class heads for a popular pool hall and joins an impromptu keg party. However, star football player Randall Pink Floyd is asked to sign a pledge by his coach promising not to take drugs during the summer or do anything that would jeopardize the goal of a championship season. Meanwhile, the incoming freshmen try to avoid being hazed by the seniors, most notably the sadistic bully Fred O'Banion. I enjoyed this movie. I have seen pieces of it over the past, and I don't remember if I had seen it in full before this, but I liked it pretty well. It's not my favorite Richard Linklater film, of course, because that would be School of Rock, (laughs) but it was fun, and I like how it gave us the famous McConaughey lines of, all right, all right, all right, and like, be a lot cooler if you did. I like that it gave us that persona, because it's a lot of Matthew in that role, except the creep parts as far as I know but just his cool like all right man it's all good just keep living and he says that in the movie too just JKL just keep living (laughs) so I like that it gave us that and the story is fun it's like a bunch of high schoolers so it's just all this stuff going on because there's so many to keep track of I like movies like that where it's a bunch of different stories meshed into one the main anchoring parts are interesting enough to make it good and with the time period there's a lot of like misogyny and sexism Mm -hmm. but it it takes place in that time so it makes sense but it's still just icky yeah but there's nothing that you can do because that's what it was so whenever you have high school girls calling other high school girls little sluts and bitches (laughs) it's just like come on but that was the time so just hazing them yep and hazing was so crazy just how intent these seniors were to paddle these freshmen's butts Mm -hmm. they built these paddles and like painted them and decorated them and made them all special to just go and beat these kids they were so excited and intent to do it it was so weird just getting off that male aggression yeah and the teachers know that it's going on and they're like that's fine the one teacher who the incoming freshmen were just like can we go early or something so you can help us get out and he's like "Eh, whatever he's just like laughing at them like your ass is grass it's not my problem you aren't gonna make it yeah not my problem the teachers know and they're fine with it and then like the cheerleaders hazing the other incoming freshman cheerleaders Mm -hmm. it's insane and then what the boys were saying like yeah I mean they gave him the space to do it it's fine yeah (laughs) no one cares so I'm glad we don't have all that as far as I know (laughs) I mean colleges fraternities still get pretty whack and yeah sororities get whacked sometimes but at least high school isn't that bad at least my high school experience wasn't that bad I didn't know of any hazing that extreme yeah (laughs) 
you also never tried out for cheerleading. So. No, but from what I heard, I had a lot of classes with cheerleaders and they were like in it my entire four years. So yeah. I never heard them saying like, we got called bitches and had ketchup squirted on us and had to propose to boys. I don't know. I didn't hear anything about that at least. So like, it's strange to see high schoolers caring that much. I never thought about it hazing that hardcore in high school. Yeah, it's pretty wild how this is what they lived for. This is what some of the people, like mm-hmm. Ben Affleck's character, yeah. this was the pinnacle of his year was being able to get to beat up some freshmen. And people made jokes about, like, he was already a senior and then he just failed so he could do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, man, it's wild. But it had been a minute since I had seen this movie. I'm pretty sure it had been at least 15 years, if not longer, since I had seen this movie. And I... I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I remembered enjoying it. And it blew my mind how pretty much everyone in Hollywood was in this movie. Like all of the kind of the more indie people, people would just show up and I'm like, this person's here. This Like, oh, there's Adam Goldberg. Oh, there's Parker Posey. And I'm like, this is so crazy because people I did not remember were in this movie were featured prominently in this movie. Mm-hmm. Anthony Rapp. I'm like, I didn't know he was around back then. My first exposure to him was Rent, I'm pretty sure. So it was a lot of fun. And like I said, there's some problematic stuff, but I think it's mostly intentionally problematic. I think there's some probably unintentional Mm -hmm. problematic stuff that maybe if Richard made it these days, it wouldn't be as much. I really enjoyed how he was able to structure this movie and he made it really feel like a small town hangout movie. Everyone was given a good amount of screen time for their characters and just seeing how people would interconnect and people would jump from one car to another and like, oh, this person's with this group now and this person's with this group. And I just loved the way that he structured everything and it just felt like it was a cool movie. Like you felt this was a cool hang, basically. Yeah, it reminds me some of American Graffiti. It has that same feel but it's like it takes place in the 50s I think yeah so it's like the same thing where all these people are just jumping around car to car going places different parties different dances and Mm -hmm. they're all hanging out and they all kind of know each other Mm -hmm. (laughs) I like this one a lot more than everybody wants some agreed yeah I didn't really enjoyed everybody wants some but this one was I thought was great this is just a random part but just I'm pretty sure this was maybe one of the only times I've ever seen Mila Jovovich as just kind of a normal person (laughs) instead of like in a genre movie like Fifth Element or Resident Evil or anything. Yeah. That's always just been the mode I've seen her in. And just seeing her just as like a normal high school girl. I mean, she's a stoner, but like still a normal high school girl. It's fun. I was just like, hey, look at you. Like you can do other stuff. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen her outside of those things, but I also haven't been like looking or following her. So I don't know. Yeah. She's very much been in that vein pretty much. Richard has such a great way of capturing the ease of conversations. He's really good at writing dialogue. Like, even small stuff, like whenever the girls were having a discussion about Gilligan's Island and how it's a male fantasy and everything. (laughs) They made some good points. Yeah, it's incisive, and I like those moments where you're just like, yeah, you're right. All the guys on the island are pretty much, like, unappealing to most women. Goobers. Yeah, and then there's, like, two... For the professor. Which is a point that one of them makes. Like, no, not the nerdy professor. (laughs) But he's not nerdy. (laughs) 
right. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you. But just like you had the girl next door in the sex pot Mm. available for everyone. I just enjoyed that. It captured the kind of random conversations like you and your friends might have. Yeah, because like whenever you're in high school, you have time to think about all that stuff. And then you're just thinking about random things. You put on the air of like, I'm more sophisticated and knowledgeable than I actually am. Like I'm grown up. It's the age where you feel like I'm an adult now. So you're like, I'm having sophisticated conversations. And so sometimes it's like pseudo intellectualism, but Mm -hmm. it just comes out and it's just all random stuff because you're just learning and figuring stuff out. And then also some of them were stoners. So of course you have weird thoughts that come out. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. One thing I wanted to bring up, I could be reaching a little bit, but I wanted to bring it up because I wrote it down. So earlier this year, I rewatched the Rolling Thunder review, the Bob Dylan film from Martin Scorsese from a couple years ago. And in the course of really digging into that in the Criterion Blu-ray, I was learning a lot about what... Dylan and Scorsese were trying to say about the bicentennial of the country and how society was around that time. And this movie, it takes place during the year of the bicentennial. And it's not a huge part of the movie, but there is like the part where the teacher kind of talks about how... I just wrote down, teacher knows what's up, because she just talked about... Don't forget what you're celebrating. A bunch of guys who don't want to pay their taxes. Yeah. So I like that there's just the smallest amount of social commentary that breaks the illusion in the slightest way of just like, don't idealize this time. This is a fun time, but also like things weren't perfect. And there is a black person in this movie, but this is a supremely white experience. And they're kind of immune almost to the problems of the world that are really going on. So it's just kind of like a very subtle, touch I think on Richard's part of just inserting that where they are in the political and social scheme. Yeah, both the 60s and 70s were very tumultuous and all kinds of things were happening, change and illusions being shattered and I don't know if anyone like idealizes certain well some people do whenever if they are like teenagers and they're just having fun but Mm -hmm. whenever I hear like America was so much better than usually people are talking about like the 50s, like the 40s and 50s so I think people get angry about the 60s and 70s but there's so many things happening like cultural shifts and new music and influences and all kinds of stuff yeah it's just like yeah they were better for people who looked like you right (laughs) i just thought it was important to note just in case people might view this movie as just light and flimsy i don't think it's completely without maybe something worth digging into a little bit more but if i do want to just view it on a purely surface level i just want to say this movie had a banger of a soundtrack and Of course, because the time that it takes place. <laughs> Just from the opening Sweet Emotion from Aerosmith, which I had to look it up. I was like, surely this song is anachronistic. I don't think it's that old. And I was like, no, it came out in like 75. That's wild. So mm-hmm. Aerosmith been going for a long time. I don't know. That's so weird to me. Like, I don't view them as that old. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's because they had their second big uprising in the 90s. Like when we were yeah. coming up. So I'm just like, yeah, Aerosmith. Yeah, I know them. Yeah, but they started in 70. Yeah, like in the 70s, I'm pretty sure. I think it was 70. Okay. So they've been around for a long time, but they just had like a comeback in the 90s. So it seemed like, oh, that's when they came about. <laughs> yeah, Armageddon, baby. Yeah, and uh, Crying with Alicia in the music video and yeah. Liv Tyler. It was a time. 
Yeah. And then also connecting back to the Rolling Thunder Review, there they had Hurricane song that he performed in Rolling Thunder Review about mm. the boxer from Bob Dylan in this movie. And I was like, nice, nice. Richard, he's usually really good with music. Like, as you mentioned, School of Rock is dope, but he's so great. I love him. Even his lesser movies, I think, are interesting usually. Mm-hmm. As I've told you recently, he has quickly become one of my favorites mm-hmm. <laughs> director-wise that I didn't realize because just watching stuff and I'm like, oh, I really like this and it's Richard. Yeah, it accumulates. Yeah. Just every new thing we watch, like, oh yeah, this is good. This is good. Oh, okay. He's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah! oh no. What is your rating system for this one? My rating system is all right, all right, all right. <laughs> and I would give this movie three and a half, all right, all right, all right, out of five. All right. What's yours? I'm just going to be a basic scrub and just say kegs of beer. <laughs> I would take down four kegs of beer. It'd be a real good party. If you want to see if this nostalgic trip suits you, it is currently available on Peacock and AMC Plus, as well as on Blu-ray. There's a very nice Criterion Blu-ray that we watched it on that I would highly recommend. Be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> joining us for this episode of Home Dance Film Festival. Join us again next week when we'll be discussing the 2018 Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and the 2020's Sylvie's Love, starring Tessa Thompson, plus a wild card that you'll have to wait to hear about. For those who want to prepare at home, Won't You Be My Neighbor is currently available on HBO Max and Blu-ray, and Sylvie's Love is available on Prime Video. If you have any thoughts or opinions about the movies we discussed today or movie suggestions, you can write us at homedancepod at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter and tweet at us at homedancepod. If you like the show, feel free to leave a rating or a review. It helps us out. If you didn't like it, no probs. Yeah, no sweat off our back. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DylanGonzalez2. You can also find me publishing reviews almost daily on GeekVibesNation.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at JessicaNarrates. You can also find me contributing to GeekVibesNation.com. Yeah, you know what? This week, Jessica here published a dope retrospective about Legally Blonde celebrating its 20-year anniversary. And you know what? My girl here got a shout-out from Reese with. <laughs> Witherspoon herself on Twitter, so go read the article that made Reese Witherspoon quote-unquote smile. It's a pretty great day. <laughs> but you know what? We're proud to be a part of the Geek Vibes Nation podcasting network. Original music for the show is provided by Andrew Carroll, who can be found at musicbyandrewcarroll.com. Original artwork for the show is provided by Ben Belcher, who can be found on Instagram at the Art of Ben Belcher. I've been Jessica. And I'm Dylan. So how's this year's crop of podcast listeners looking? Jessica, you're going to end up in jail sometime. Nah, man. Nah. Let me tell you something. That's what I love about these podcast listeners. I get older, and they just stay the same age. Yes, they do. Bye. Bye.